Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has led to a revival for the NATO alliance. Recently attacked for being brain dead by French President Emmanuel Macron, the alliance has rediscovered its original purpose in organizing cooperative defense against Russian aggression, and has even added a new member in Finland, with possible Swedish accession on the horizon. As NATO considers its future, however, it must continue to deal with persistent issues, most important of which is interoperability between its member states. Our guests today, Colonel Joel Gleason and Lieutenant Colonel Giovanni Corrado, have been working with their research project in the Carlisle Scholars Program as students at the U.S. Army War College to talk to NATO's standardization office about NATO doctrine and advances in multinational interoperability. And they join us today to discuss their work. Colonel Joel Gleason is a current student at the Army War College in the Carlisle Scholars Program. A U.S. Army logistics officer and inbound 5th Corps G5, he has published a number of professional articles on issues related to logistics and military life, uh, including an article on allied parallel planning published through the Center for Army Lessons Learned that became the basis of an annex in NATO's publication for tactical planning in the land domain. Lieutenant Colonel Giovanni Corrado is also a student in the War College class of 2023 in the Carlisle Scholars Program, is an officer in the Italian Army, an airborne infantry officer with a second specialty in intelligence. Now, Colonel Gleason and Lieutenant Colonel Corrado were the co-leads on this research project on interoperability, and we are delighted to have them with us today on A Better Peace. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be here. It's great to have you both here. So, uh, Joel, I'll start with you. Right? What are the most important concepts on alliance management that consider the interplay between national resources, national interests, and interoperability to gain military efficiency? Uh, so alliance management, if I can start, I'll, I'll kind of define it as we understand it. Uh, alliance management is where nations really are looking to meet their national interests while conserving their national resources by using other nations' capabilities to fill gaps in their own capabilities. Uh, the competing factors there are that you can rely on an ally, but you can't rely on an ally to the degree that you lose efficiency in getting after your own national interests. And even though NATO allies are all uh, fairly similar in their national interests and they're able to, to share and to work together, NATO allies still have to get to a point where they're not expending their own resources to a larger degree in order to work with the allies and partners they need to work with. And that's where interoperability comes into play. Great. Jill, what do you have to add to that? 
So I think that one key aspect in alliance management is interoperability and NATO has a clear definition of interoperability, which is the ability of NATO and other political departments and agencies and forces as well of partner nations to act together coherently, effectively, and efficiently to achieve allied tactical, operational, and strategic objectives. Uh, NATO defines three different dimensions of interoperability. The first one is uh, the technical piece, which is about the systems and uh, equipment and their ability to operate together. And then there is the procedural interoperability, which is based on measures such as common doctrine, procedures, terminology, and standards. And the last, but I would say the most important piece, is the human interoperability, which concerns mutual trust and understanding which is achieved by strengthening relationship in training and on operations. So all these three dimensions work together to achieve interoperability within NATO. Mm -hmm. So NATO has a definition of interoperability. And clearly, as a multinational alliance, right, this has been an issue since, oh, about 1949. Um, And so how well has NATO handled the issue of interoperability up to now? And what are the biggest areas of concern? So... As far as NATO handling interoperability, um, really, they've done a pretty good job mm-hmm. of putting out common doctrine and common principles, etc. But um, one part of our study, uh, you know, we got we got out in the field, we interviewed uh, over 150 NATO officers and NCOs, uh, engagements with over 180, and one question that we asked almost all 150 in the formal interviews is what STANAGs or standardized uh, NATO agreements do you use in your day-to-day? And so, uh, as you mentioned, the Allied Planning Pub 28, the one that I have an annex kind of in, um, that is an example of a STANAG. So something that the U.S. military might think of as doctrine is a STANAG, but also policies and other agreements. And so we asked them, how many STANAGs do you use in your day-to-day? And almost all of the respondents uh, gave us an answer of either none or a very small number. But then when we observed their actual function within multinational uh, battle groups, so battalion-level formations uh, between, you know, 500 and uh a thousand people and any of those organizations. And we looked at them and, you know, they've got anywhere from four to 11 nations merged together under a Lieutenant Colonel's command and they're functioning, right? Yet they tell us they don't use NATO doctrine. So we looked a little further and really what I would submit to you is that NATO nations, uh, new members or, you know, old 1949 members, don't necessarily teach their officers and NCOs NATO doctrine. But what they do do, we discovered, is that they base their doctrine. We, the U.S., either base our doctrine or share our doctrine so that NATO doctrine is common with our doctrine in so many ways that the differences are pretty insignificant. And so when you get these formations together, even the one that has 11 nations, what we found is that they were interoperable because the environment, the, the, basically, you know, the, the pool they're swimming in is NATO doctrine, even though, you know, the, the particular stroke they're doing is, is their nation's own individual interpretation of that. And so 
what we found is that NATO is pretty surprisingly interoperable, even with formations that shouldn't be. Right. NATO interoperability doctrine was never written for these multinational formations to be battalions. Right. Well, now I'm going to ask a heretical question for a guy who's contributed to a doctrinal document. And that is, well, then, Joel, what's the point of writing doctrine if it turns out that uh, people don't read it or people don't know what they're that they're following it? Um I know there is a point. I've got plenty of colleagues at the War College who will assure me there is a point. Uh, um, but how do we, how, you know, when you point out that, right, people are sort of doing the right thing without actually following the doctrine because the doctrine didn't account for this thing. Is that a, is that a failure of training? Is that a failure of doctrine writing? Or is it just the way, uh, the way militaries tend to kludge together practical, uh, uh, practical work, regardless of what's actually written on paper? Maybe it's a psychological bias in the individual, which Ooh, is to say, yes, we we don't necessarily credit our sources in day to day life, right? Mm -hmm. This year at the War College, we've all gone through the awkward experience of having to credit our sources. But the awesome thing is, next year is the G five for Fifth Corps. I get to steal with both hands, and so long as I don't do it in a way that's uh, corrupt or dirty, uh, I, I don't necessarily need to credit my sources when I brief my uh, commanding general or whoever else the plan. And so, in a similar way, uh, you know, if you have an uh, an OR six, which for the the U.S. an E six or a staff sergeant, a mid grade NCO. Um, who walks into an interview session and says, I don't use doctrine. Um, that, that may be that he perceives or she perceives her day to day in that way, but doctrine is not meant to be something that you have to pull out when you're in the foxhole in order to succeed. It's meant to be something that gives us a common foundation so that when we operate together, common sense is tied by some initial ideas that we all have that are the same. Mm -hmm. So I, I too am a, a bit of a fan of doctrine. And uh, I, I, you know, as, as mentioned, I've, I've got a, a bit of my penmanship in some as well. And, and I think that that's the value of doctrine, but I actually kind of want to take your question and, and throw it over to Giovanni because I know He's got some pretty interesting take on it from how the Italian army uses NATO doctrine. Sure. Gio, go ahead, man. Yeah. In the case of the Italian army, we use NATO doctrine one on one, I would say. So we uh, actually adopt uh, NATO doctrine in, uh, in full. So there is no mismatches when we transition from national operation to multinational operation in, uh, in a NATO uh, context. I think that uh, in terms of interoperability and what NATO doctrine did in terms of uh, interoperability is that during our research, we observed that the current interoperability in NATO in those multinational tactical formation has two primary inputs. The first one is a localized inputs, which are the efforts that commanders make every day to make interoperability happen. But... A big piece was the inter enterprise inputs, which were the past interoperability efforts by NATO in terms of providing a common doctrine, providing TTPs and uh, other standards that had set the set condition for uh, today's successful multinational tactical level operation. So uh, I think the good, the usefulness of writing doctrine, especially in NATO, is 
providing that common environment that co- those common principles that commanders can use to write their own tactical level SOPs and provide common standards for the, for their formations. And that's fair. And I, and I can't help and and you're know, going back to something that that you said Joel, right? If if doctrine in some ways is the water that we swim in, right? There's David Foster Wallace's observation about two fish are swimming and one says, you know, what do you think about water and the other fish says, what's water? Um, if you're in it all the time, right, you don't really think about it. Um, and so with that in mind, right, um, what were the what were the most important results of your research of this of this analysis that you did um, about interoperability? Um, you know, and 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 actually, let me let me take a step back too. Is both of you are in the Carlisle Scholars Program, which is a special subset of students at the War College. And how did you? Uh, and and so, can you explain to me how you ended up working on this particular project and what this meant for your education at the War College? So I'll start with you, Joel, and then and then Gio. So Carlisle Scholars gives you an interesting opportunity, which uh, it's not the only program at the War College that offers you client-based research opportunities, but that is the core of what the Carlisle Scholars program does. We take the War College curriculum and kind of uncomfortably jam it into the first half of the year. (laughs) And what that does is it frees up between 90 and 120 days for the, the scholar students to do applied strategy projects. And so we're tasked to reach out to strategic headquarters, three-star and above, not necessarily military, uh, but, you, you know, if you want to reach out to a, a senior executive uh, or somebody, you know, in the government who's a strategic headquarters, in our particular case, we reached out um, to, through some connections that I have in Europe, reached out and ultimately got in touch with the deputy chair of the NATO military committee, who's Lieutenant General Lance Landrum, uh, U.S. Air Force. His responsibilities include the NATO Standardization Office, which is an organization I've worked with before because uh, I did take that opportunity to to get um, something I wrote into their hands, and then they turned it into uh, a, a bit of NATO doctrine. And so I knew what they did. I knew about the timeline because, interestingly, I wrote that piece in 2016. It was published in 2019 uh, from NATO. So I knew, okay, hey, three years, that's okay. We don't necessarily need to do something that immediately impacts here at the War College. We wanted to have something that made a lasting impact. And so reaching out through the NATO Standardization Office, um, a gentleman named uh, Rob Tribucci, who's the deputy director there, asked us a very interesting question that I've interpreted as he wanted a Yelp review on NATO doctrine, right? NATO doctrine for interoperability is written so that two allied corps or two allied divisions or maybe even brigades operating side by side can function together. But that's not what NATO is doing. NATO's 2022 strategic concept has eight enhanced forward presence battle groups forward in the eight states that are, eight nations that are considered the flanks. And each of those battle groups has between four and 11 nations contributing. And so, you know, how is that working? How is interoperability functioning, even though the doctrine wasn't written for the echelon that is currently executing? It is functional. Um, and, but they also wanted to know, can they make it better? And so with that, we went out, got on the ground in three of those eight. We got to 
Latvia, uh, Lithuania, and Poland. And each of those nations has a battle group that is led by a framework nation. And then it, they have troop contributing nations that that build the entire battle group so that they have a battalion plus force that's able to function as part of the national defense plan of those nations. Gotcha. And so we're talking battalion size. So when you just said that NATO interoperability goes down to the brigade level, but not any further. So they, so basically you have to improvise once you get beyond the brigade level. Yeah. It's a lot of improvisation. It is the will of the units that are part of it. And it's something where we saw battle group commanders really taking individualized approaches to the formations that they had in front of them based on a lot of different things, whether it was national caveats or restrictions or the the culture of those particular nations that are contributing cr- troops or the pr- previous relationships that those nations have between each other before they even get into um, the battle group position. That's great. Well, and, and Geo, so I, I can imagine as interoperability, this puts a lot of pressure on the, I guess, lieutenant colonel who's in charge of that uh uh, battle group, right? That battalion-sized battle group. So, Giovanni, what's your what's your sense about how this works interoperability? I think my my sense is that interoperability is working because uh, we saw tactical level units consisting of many different nations being able to train together, to operate together. And by the way, commanders has to overcome many challenges that they have and. Uh, each battery group has unique challenges, so we cannot. We were not able to generalize solution for all of them, but we were able uh, to find common themes in our observation, trying to provide the NATO standardization office with uh, principles and initiatives that they can take to improve the current level of, uh, of interoperability. So what we found is that commanders on the field are doing whatever they can to make interoperability happen. But at the same time, NATO has to do some more efforts, I would say, to help those commanders to improve their current level of interoperability, even though they are unable to operate, to work, and to train together as a single unit. And what we observe in positive terms is that every single commander, from the battalion commander down to the platoon, commanders, the platoon leaders, all of them were very willing to make the mission successful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in my, in my earlier research about uh, or the early days of NATO and the early days of Atlantic cooperation, there was, uh, there was a lot of work done, the, the initial plan for a European defense community, which was going to create a single European army. And the running joke then was that in such an army, the largest single formation would be the translators corps. Um, and that was uh, because it got down to the question of how do you get six different countries? It was at the time to, to be on the same page. Well, last time I checked, right, NATO has more than two dozen states. How do we deal with basic issues of communication 
within NATO, especially when you talk about a an enhanced forward presence group that's got four to eleven nations involved. What kind of I, mean, I imagine is the am I right in assuming that the common language is English? Um, but am I also how does the I can see where that could work among officers who are given special training, but how do we get uh, communication and interoperability down to the smallest tactical level with soldiers who may not have the time or the energy or the capacity to learn uh, to learn a second language. How does that work? I will say that commanders were very creative in this environment because the language barrier exists. Um, so they were able, for example, to push their own signalers with national radios to the company commanders to uh, belonging to a different nation, trying to establish communication from uh, the battle group down to the, the company level. And sometimes we observed also that the diversity of the force helps in these terms, because, for example, when uh, uh, you have a nation with many soldiers coming from South America, I would say they are able to talk and speak to the Spanish company which is able to understand when it comes to, you know, daily interaction with the Italians. So there are many workarounds and many solutions that they were able to find at the tactical level just to make communication possible. And another point, and I think that probably Joel will can go a bit in more details in this, also the digitalization of the force will help in these terms because talking over the radio is a bit difficult, especially between an English native speaker and non-native speakers. But when it comes to reading a message instead of listening to a message, it's much easier to understand and cooperate. I can see that. Joel, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, liaison officers are crucial in all formations. But when you have a formation that is multilingual, not only do you need somebody who is able to speak either the main language of the formation or the language of the the element that they're currently communicating with, right? As, as Gio pointed out, uh, interestingly, there, there's an element out there that's using Spanish as well as, uh, you know, NATO, English and French are the, the first and second languages of NATO. Um, but, you know, looking for other ways to communicate, that that's an, an easy and obvious option. But the interesting thing is, you know, if you look across your your own formation or your own organization and, and find all the French speakers you can, um, you know, hey, this guy grew up in in Quebec, Canada, and, and moved to America when when they were you know 15 years old. Well, that means that that individual speaks uh, middle school or high school French, right? That doesn't mean that that individual can help you translate tactics and doctrine and make sure that you can clearly communicate. Uh, what artillery needs to do or what tanks need to do. So you add into the language barriers that we have the the fact that we're communicating about something that is very technical and specific, even within the native language of the individuals who are executing it. And so um, I think one of our conclusions that nobody was surprised by, but it's certainly an, uh, an observation that we were able to confirm is that language is the most important first step to interoperability, right? That's the the human interoperability piece is two things. It's language, are you able to communicate? And it's will, are you willing to work together? Across the board, they're willing to work together. We we witnessed that and I didn't see any instances of uh, of any serious constraints. You know, there's, there's all the uh, 
potential for, for jokes between nations, just the same as the Army might pick on the Marine Corps or the Marine Corps might pick on the Air Force. But the point is that, you know, sure, there's, there's little tensions, but there's a will to work together and get the mission done. And just the same as, as when you interoperate between joint services or interoperate between, you know, the active and the, the reserve and guard components. The challenge is the language. And what we saw was, one, there's this key to selecting an LNO that can not only speak the language, but can speak the language in a very particular and necessary way. But also we saw across the formations, the depth of training on language was, as you suspected, officers are really you know, good at speaking primarily English. That's where they, they look to train and educate and, and get better. Makes it easy for us as Americans or lazy, perhaps. Um, the, the NCO core um, is a little less consistent as we see it, where it is some NCOs, some of the NCOs we uh, interviewed brought a junior NCO with them as their translator as much as anything else. But interestingly enough, one of the NCOs pointed out to me, and it it held, as we observed, that the junior soldiers in the formations raised on the internet and television, digital natives, they just got English because they've been doing it since, you know, grade school. So, I think as years go past and those junior soldiers become those senior NCOs, we'll see this problem start to dissipate. Um, Although I'll throw back to you that Bluey has not taught me much about how to direct artillery. Well, that's what I was thinking too. I can go to Duolingo and I can work on my Italian and my French um, and and I can have lots of conversations, but am I going to be able to bark out coordinates for an artillery um, spotter? Uh, I, I have my doubts, right? That would take, that would take a lot of work. And, and Joe, I want to throw it back to you because I want to ask you as well, but both in this project and as your experience as an international fellow at the War College, right? As our listeners may or may not know, um, in any given residential class, we've got about 75 to 80 international fellows. They are, they are students from allied and partner militaries. And of course the Italians have been sending an officer to the War College annually uh, for as long as anybody can remember. Um, and so, Gio, what was your experience like, or what has your experience been like in Carlisle as an uh, international fellow? And had you had much experience training in the United States before you came here for um, senior service college? Oh, yes. Um, the experience was great overall, uh, both in my seminar and the work college at, at large. I would say this is not my uh, first experience here in the States because I attended CJC in uh, 2013 and SAMS in 2014. So this is my third year of education here in the States. And I think uh, each of those experiences was a building block for my overall uh, education. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to have this further opportunity uh, to be educated at the Army War College. And as I said, uh, it, I didn't expect this kind of outcome for for myself, especially being in the Carlisle Scholars Program, because I like researching, I like uh, uh, writing, and the Scholars Program gave me this this opportunity. So uh, this year with such wonderful colleagues and instructors. Well, on, on behalf of on behalf of your colleagues and instructors, right? Thanks for that, Joe. Um, I can, can I just add that that Joe has not only taught me words in English. 
but he consistently spells better than me. So let's just bear in mind that um, perhaps it's the degree of scholarship, not necessarily which language is native to you. It 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 helps, right? Is to be with somebody who who has uh, attention to such things. I, uh, I mean, the, the, these kinds of questions, right? About how how the experience of being a student at the Army War College, right? What it does, where we take you out of your your typical of uh, assignments and we bring you back to school, as it were, um, and then we sort of see how well you can for this 10 months that you're here can adapt to these things. Um, the, the project sounds sounds fascinating. I want to ask both of you. Uh, so Joel, I mentioned what you're going to go off to do after you leave here. Um, but um, could you say something about what's next for you and Geo as well? What what happens after? Um, you know, I'm going to we're recording this on the, the 17th of May. And, uh, and sometime in the next couple of weeks, there will be commencement. I'm assuming both of you are going to graduate. Don't disappoint me. Um, but um, <laughs> but uh, but what's going to happen after you graduate from from the war college? Just go first to you, Joel. So, um, it's it's a great opportunity to go from the war college uh, to be the fifth core G five with this particular study in my experience. Right, one of the one of the sites we visited in the thirty engagements that weren't counted to this, the official interviews was the interoperability lab that fifth core has in Posen in Poland. So. I actually didn't know I was going to fifth core at the time. Um, I, I was, I was headed to another assignment. My EFMP came back and, and they need me to stay in the States or, uh, you know, that's how to keep the Gleason family together. And I prefer that. But, uh, as I head off to fifth core, I've already worked with their team. Who's working on inter interoperability. I know that the fifth core G5 has an interoperability responsibility with what they're planning and how they're working together with, with allies and partners. And it gave me a great understanding of a significant portion of the actual area of operations that I'll be in. So even though I'll be hanging my hat in Fort Knox, Kentucky, I'll be forward in some of the areas where I've worked. And I've made a great number of contacts through this that I can continue to work with and make that team more successful as well. Sounds great. Joe, how about you? So in my case, my horizon stops on June 9th, the graduation day, because I, I don't know. I, I know that I'm going back to Italy, but I still don't know what's next for me. So still waiting for. Okay. So the army likes to keep you in suspense, I guess. So. No, I. I, I with your, with your, with your orders when you return. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are many decisions that must be taken on me. I mean, I should be promoted. And then after that, they will assess my next assignment. So it takes time, like many armies, both. So. All right. Well, both of you, I uh, congratulations on this particular research project and good luck um, in the work that you do in the future. Uh, and good luck, you know, I guess good luck to all of us in the uh, in NATO that we figure out this these issues of interoperability so that we can continue. Uh, to provide stability, security, uh, and uh, you know a, a, a broad community for members of the uh, Atlantic nations going forward in the face of myriad international threats. But uh, thank you so much, Colonel Joel Gleason. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Giovanni Corrado, for joining us today on A Better Peace. Hey, thank you for having us. Thank you, Ron. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your suggestions, your comments, your thoughts on this program and all the programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice because 
why wouldn't you want to subscribe to a better piece? And after you have subscribed to a better piece, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast because once you have done that, that helps other people to find out about us as well. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And so even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.